You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. And in today's episode, we're going to be hearing from Sean Usmar. He is the CEO and founder of Triple Flag Precious Metals. I was introduced to Sean a few years ago when Triple Flag was a private company. Uh, They've since IPO'd in this last year. And I'm bringing him back on the show so he can give us his thoughts on what's going on in the sector, as well as introduce to us Triple Flag. So Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, Bill. Thanks. It's good to see you again. Likewise. And I'm going to just read off a couple things off your bio here, just so listeners can get an introduction to you. You're an international mining executive with over 25 years experience. You were a senior executive vice president and CFO of Barrick from 2014 to 2016, where you helped restructure the company. And you were with Extrata in uh, 2002 as an early senior executive member of the management team that grew the company into one of the world's largest diversified miners at the time before its acquisition by Glencore in 2013. Is all that accurate? That's accurate, yeah. Great. All right, Uh, you're running a company that invests in gold, obviously. So let's start off with your gold thesis. When you're talking to an investor that maybe isn't as loaded up in in gold, like me and some of my listeners, how would you explain the gold thesis? You know, as a guy, I've I've had my career working in originally steel and aluminum. I worked in base and bulks uh, and diversifieds, which I think is kind of unique in our competitor set. And then, of course, I was CFO Barrick. I think of gold as a currency, and I think of it, and particularly in a business like this, it's underpinned through hard assets. It's generating strong cash flow. You're getting exposure to you know the, the price cycles as they emerge, but you continue to invest through it. So it generates strong strong yield, and at the same time, generates your really handy dividend, uh, and provides you with all that beautiful optionality without that exposure to the sort of inflation. And if you look at the environment that we're in right now. With some of these markets being priced to perfection, we get these various shocks. I think it's just prudent for investors to have some gold exposure as part of their overall thesis and portfolio, um, whether you consider it insurance or something that is, um, uh, you know, a, a, a sensible part of just managing your overall portfolio. I have no idea why people wouldn't do that. So that's um, that, that's really how I look at it from my personal perspective, um, having really worked in the mining space for a very long time now. I have a friend in the last month that said to me, they, they know I focus on gold and gold stocks. And they said, why isn't gold performing better when inflation is so high? Now, I had a hard time answering that one. Uh, how would you answer that person? Yeah, look, I think we're in such unusual times right now, right? When you look at um, just every little news event and the sort of volatility that's characterized it, I actually think it presents opportunities for people who are caught up in you know the sort of microsecond uh, anxieties of the markets that we seem to have, and if you take a longer term perspective, um, <clears throat> it just seems like a very interesting thing to me. This whole idea that inflation is is transient, the evidence seems to really strongly point to the opposite, and you're starting to see it flow out now in the news flow of, of miners, right? Uh, I think just even these these recent quarterlies, you're starting to see uh, some clear inflation over and above what we're seeing being reported. With you know so-called three or four percent CPI, the minute you start seeing this flow across into wages, which we are seeing, I don't know how that gets that genie gets put back in the bottle. So I, I really think that it's going to continue to be a thing that dominates. I think then the market will catch up with that. I think in the short term, the gold price is obviously being affected with uh, with news from the Fed, um, but um, it's also there's a seasonal aspect, right? Uh, December. 
and January does tend to be a more subdued period and somehow people come back in the new year feeling uh, uh, different about it and you often see a lot of strength in the in the gold price in the new year. You often see these equity windows for miners open up in the new year as well. What about uh, the first rate, rate hike? Should we see it from the Fed? Do you think that could be a starting gun for a nice gold run? I think so. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's kind of why I do think there's an opportunity here to take a longer term perspective on this whole thing, because there's so much noise. You just look at look at the last six months alone. We've seen these sort of peaks and valleys uh, that have emerged. And if you think about just the sheer amount of um, government largesse we're seeing around the world, uh, clear signs of inflation everywhere, the supply chain disruptions that um, I think everyone's experiencing in their lives right now. I think the um, the, the backdrop is, is should really be very good for gold. Let's talk gold sector. You have experience in M&A selling a company, you know, and you work for Barrick. So you were looking for companies to acquire. What are your thoughts on gold sector M&A specifically next year in 2022? Yeah, it's such a it's such an important question. I think um, firstly, gold is one of the most fragmented sectors in the world. It's so fragmented. Uh, there's also too many lifestyle companies out there. So I, my hope is, you know, we've come from a period, understandably, where the gold cycle um, and I was, you know, CFO at Barrick, really in there at a time where, when I started, gold was twelve fifty. And the company had lost money for three years. And the whole idea was to reset the cost structure, get it to generate positive free cash, and really set the company up for success as the market sort of improved. So I think in 15, we were dealing with 1050 gold at that period. And we managed to make cash again. We set this thing up correctly. So um, my my view at that point and my view now is that there's just there's a, there was need for that capital discipline and the reset. But mining company balance sheets are in pretty good shape. I mean, prices have been good. Um, I, I would like to think, as we've seen with Technigo and Kirkland, that you start seeing some really sensible combinations where there's some natural synergies and there's just a, a sensible combination. And we're definitely seeing more activity. You saw Pretium recently. Uh, every banker you talk to likes to say with glee about just how busy they are at the moment. So I think that's super encouraging. And um, I really do hope we see more consolidation and really more value creation for shareholders along the way. I think it's well poised. So I've been told by people much smarter than myself that there needs to be gold sector amongst the producers consolidation, but there also needs to be consolidation in the royalty sector. Would you yeah. agree with that comment? Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. I think it's an interesting one. You know, very often you see consolidation in mining, um, which is which is a forced marriage in some ways by virtue of just circumstance at a point in the cycle, or indeed like people coming together because they see the possibility. In my career. Um, you know, I started off in operations, but then after my MBA in the US, I ended up in corporate finance, worked on deals in Colombia, China, all over. And I worked in the Beatrice Billiton merger. And, you know, that took three attempts over years to get there to create the world's largest miner at the time. So, you know, these, these dating periods take a long time to, uh, you know, manifest, but um, they really are important to value creation. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really hopeful we'll see. More so more that so that begs the question, leads into my question: Why another precious metals royalty company with triple flag? Yeah, we, we got that question a lot. So you know, I um, and I'd say certainly the conventional wisdom on Bay Street and elsewhere is it's well catered for. Um, you don't need another one. And when you look at the question you just asked, I mean, we've seen quite a lot of new entrants, uh, certainly in the smaller space where the barriers to entry are lower. I think the way they choose to compete is different to how we emerged. And by that, I mean, either there's like a business incubator component or an area where they 
perhaps uh, generate the property to spin it out to take back the royalty and accumulate and guys do that very well. Others, you know, have a skill set where they've actually acquired existing royalties and slowly build a portfolio around there, um, less around, you know, shorter term um, cash flow generation, longer term um, generation. You've seen quite a few who are playing in that space and you've seen gold royalties emerge recently, of course, doing consolidation, which I think is wonderful. We need to see more of that. Um, you know, for us, it was very much more, uh, you know, uh, when I was at Barrick and we we were looking to um, uh, right-size the portfolio, we did a, a gold stream on Pablo Vieira for $610 million. There's only three guys who can write that check, the big three. Uh, and it was very interesting to be able to see just actually how different they were in terms of their approach. And I'd actually first encountered streams uh, and royalties <clears throat> as a form of financing and the arbitrage on display when I was at um, Extrados, uh, co-head of M&A. We bought MIM in 2002, 2003. And at that time, Yentel flipped over uh, to look to see if they could stream gold from Alambrera, which we, you know was part of that MIM portfolio. And so that just that natural cost of capital arbitrage, those ounces were just, uh, those gold ounces were a diversified on part of the core business, but they really were worth more to a business like, like this one. So coming full circle, we really emerged with a view that um, the mining sector is, is actually quite underserved through conventional funding. You get, the, the journalists have really not been around for some time. You've seen a lot of withdrawals for a number of years with various specialist funds. And there did seem to be an opportunity to take this highly customizable form of financing, where if you really had not just the technical know-how, but the commercial know-how, the experience, the networks, the ability to put ideas in front of miners to actually help fund their various priorities, whether it's balance sheet repair, M&A, building the next mine, or just monetizing non-core things, you really could invest through the cycle. And the um, area that you're competing then is really with just the big guys. You have to be able to write the checks and you need that know-how and capability. And our view was that the sector is actually underappreciating just how significant those barriers were. So that's really what we set out to do was to compete at that level, not the, the sort of lower end. And I think um, the, the, the rhetoric at the time was, well, it's well served. You're not going to do this. We came out to try and expand the opportunity set. And that's really what we've done. I mean, we've seen, um, I, I think when we emerged in 16, it was seen um, less as a more mainstream form of financing. And I think five years on, it's like most people now, when they look at alternatives, are actually considering this. There's more banks that are familiar with it. There's guys who've got more experience with it. And three quarters of our deals have come about by putting ideas in front of miners and really displacing more conventional forms of financing, giving them alternatives. And um, I think it comes, you know, comes with better outcomes for our investors as well as the, the miners in question. Sean, I've talked to a number of um, executives that are in charge of development projects that are nearing a production decision. And they yeah. tell me that a lot of the debt sheets that they're presented by lenders are totally predatory and they wouldn't do that to protect their yeah. shareholders. But at the same time, they got to find the capital to bring the asset yeah. into production. Can you talk about from your perspective, when you give catalytic capital, how can that be beneficial to the developer soon to be producer as well as producing shareholder value for your shareholders? Yeah, it's it's just, it's actually such a good question that people I think don't really appreciate. Um, it's really that if if people have the know-how um, and the ability to structure these things well, it needn't be an either-or um, uh, prospect. So I think to your point, I, I really encourage mining companies and people to go out and really understand their financing alternatives in a very uh, fundamental way. 
because to your point, use the word predatory. And we do see that, like particularly, you know, we helped um, uh, Step Gold uh, four years ago acquire um, for, it was about, we put about $28 million in at a time when nobody was IPOing, they couldn't raise funding. And we went in there, um, we, we helped them acquire acquire the old body that they needed, helped them IPO in a market where nobody was IPOing, and we helped them get into production last year, which they did very successfully. And they continued on, they've just published their Fresh Rock study. Uh, study. Um, what we found is there's a number of situations where um, we've come in as part of an overall funding cocktail, where there's maybe a consortium of lenders on a line development situation, there's some equity and the stream provides um, the ability to be fully financed, but it's also super patient. And so you know the history of the sector. People very often underestimate what can go wrong. Um, and so things often cost a bit more and they take a little longer. When you've got a lot of debt on your balance sheet um, and things don't go to script, then they're going to those lenders. Um, you know, you're having to get concessions. It's never free. There's all sorts of covenants and that that they have to deal with, and they're not negotiating from a position of strength. And usually at that time, their equity is not in a great position. So it's not easy for them to go out and raise additional equity. Um, the stream has the benefit here where it's generally covenant light. We What we ultimately want to see, I don't underwrite scenarios that usually are the same as the management teams think they were. They're always more conservative. But we have the luxury of being patient. And as long as they can deliver that and they have the ability to execute and deliver that, and that's all about due diligence, it really does create a great investment with a decent return for our investors. It complements the, the delivery for the mining team in question. It's actually really helpful in the end for the equity investors and indeed for the debt investors. So to put that in context, think of um, Continental a couple of years back. Um, they're right at the late stages of uh, delivering their mine. We put a $100 million stream in alongside Newmont to sort of last money in to get them into production. And, you know, they did an incredible job. The share price shortly after that went up significantly when, in fact, they ended up selling to Zijun, as you may recall. And even in the midst of the pandemic, Zijun has executed beautifully. They've hit commercial production. And, in fact, they're really doing a, um, an increase from three to 4,000 ton a day on throughput, which is beautiful. And we participate in that. So a good deal for us. We really helped them in a certain time. And a lot of that was informed by having done deals in Colombia 20 years ago um, when, I, when I was at, uh, at Billiton. So, um, yeah, it's just, a, it's, it's just such an important question because I think people don't fully appreciate and really understand how a stream can really be quite complementary to enabling the delivery of new mines and, uh, and be a, a good source of funding and create good com uh, competitive tension with those lenders, as you said, particularly in terms of predatory. It's good for people to have choices. Sean, you mentioned Franco Nevada, and Franco Nevada would have never become Franco Nevada today if it wasn't for exploration upside that discovers yeah. more gold. So yeah. when you're looking for possible investments, how are you balancing buying current production or near-term production with giving yourself exposure to exploration upside? It's such a good question because, um, look, strategically at the gate, we felt that it's important to be able to generate hard cash, good optionality, uh, and and scale. So what that meant is um, <clears throat> really prioritizing, targeting, operating assets, and things where typically if you're writing large checks, and our check size notionally was saying we'll do smaller and we do if we have done bigger, but it's usually that sweet spot in the one to five hundred million dollar range where we see good opportunity. And you know if you're doing deals, and we've seen the largest precious metal stream, for example, in the five 
the ideas of our existence we did in Australia with North Park last year, um, you know, that really moves the needle for a company our size, but it doesn't really do that much for the guys who've gotten so big at this stage. So we're really in that beautiful sweet spot. We can compete. We've got the scale and diversification. But to your point, um, you, you you need to still have those things that with patience and time can really create sort of outsized possible uh, opportunity and reward for shareholders. So that comes in a few forms. I think firstly on uh, operating assets and, and and things that are near operating, which as I said was strategic priority. That means having the discipline to not cap streams because otherwise you're giving away the upside. So we don't do that. It also means that um, you really need to maintain the <clears throat> the discipline and negotiation around getting exposure to uh, overall land packages because it doesn't help if someone puts a drill bit in just outside your stream area or you know where you've got a royalty. They discover the mother load and you don't get to participate. So to put that in context, I mentioned Continental. Part of that negotiation was originally all the exploration property was off the table. When we did the deal, it got included. And so that mine now, where we put $100 million in two years or less than two years ago, we've, we've already recouped $90 million. We've got $10 million outstanding on a mine that's a multi-million ounce mine that's just starting to ramp. And the um, the multi-million ounce reserve on that uh, on that mine uh, is it, it's only capturing 0.18% of the overall land package. This thing's open at depth. You've got this massive exploration area. It's exactly the kind of optionality that sort of you know lottery ticket endowment that you need. So you can look at that on on large deals. North Parks is another example where even though there's more than half a billion tons of resource and it's a mine that's been operating for 25, 26 years. The, you know, the, the mine, uh, without putting on any more drill bits in the ground right now, it's, it's so well drilled, they've really got to build the capital plan as they work forward in these decades of mine life. All that infrastructure is associated with 26 square kilometers. The um, overall land package that we have exposure to is over 1,000 square kilometers. So at some point decades from now, when they need to prove up more resources and more reserves and they put the drill bit down, we'll participate. Our shareholders will participate. And then over and above that, we have from time to time picked up, you know, just some small portfolios where usually there's, you know, one or two value drivers and you almost get those other uh, royalties essentially not for free, but for very little value. Um, we don't very often compete for these you know, small um, royalty portfolios because there's a lot of guys looking in that space. So we struggle for fundamental value there. But a good example would be, you know, we did uh, the Minutes in Terra, did the Eureka transaction. I was in front of Scott. We uh, managed to get exclusivity. We worked with them. And the two big value drivers in the larger portfolio were Young Davidson. Uh, you know, they've just done the lows on time. They've just hit record production this last quarter. We love having that, that royalty. But the other one was Fostable. And this was before the Swan Zone had sort of really manifested itself. So for us there, you know, we, we noticed, interestingly, that um, the analysts following Kirkland at the time were modeling an 11-year life of mine at, at Fosterville. The same analysts following um, this non-core partisan terrorist portfolio were modeling four years. And when we did fundamental work, we built 3D models uh, and looked at the drill holes. We did the whole thing. And what we could see is with very limited dundip extension there, that there was a way to underwrite something there, which was not 11 years and maybe slightly more than four. And just the last two years of ownership there, they've already exceeded what we underwrote by 50%. And they continue to find more and they're doing a beautiful job. So, And then in the meantime, you get those other royalties that kind of come along for very, very little value. So it's a long answer, but that's really how we, we've approached it. Uh, we'll continue to pick up the singles as we find them. 
but most of our opportunity now for focused on really large scale, high quality, um, you know, streams and royalties where we then get that longer term optionality and ATO phase two, we announced uh, nearly hundred million of incremental NAV that was announced, uh, you know, a month ago. We didn't put another dollar in. That's another 10 years of life and that's before further expiration. That's the kind of optionality we like to give to our shareholders. Sean, you mentioned you can write a 100 million to half a billion dollar check. So some of my listeners that aren't familiar with their company are like, where is this money coming from? So share about some of your backers and your act, your availability to get cash. Yeah, so look, for us competing out the gate, um, part of why I took this on and we started from a clean sheet, we weren't a bunch of guys who had emerged with someone else's portfolio, right? Uh, so we set out to build this business from scratch, build a team from scratch. It was just me initially. So, um, you know, uh, Elliot was the key to that. Uh, they're some of the smartest money uh, in the world. They've been in business over 40 years. I think when I last looked, they made something like a 13.5% cumulative, uh, well, a return, annual return, uh, with about a third of the volatility of the S&P. And I think they had two down years in over 40 years, and that included the financial crisis, which was a single-digit down year. So it's like a super impressive track record. And they love gold as part of the exposure, going back to the start of this conversation. It's just sort of a prudent a prudent exposure to have. So what drew me to them was you had a guy, group here with an impeccable track record who really um, can deal with uncertainty and ambiguity, which I think most resource investors, um, private investors kind of struggle with. But crucially, they had the firepower and they have an infinite time horizon. They're not a bunch of guys who you know, have a fund that sets in six years. And so they maybe have to sell out of that thing and make a bad decision at the wrong time of the cycle. That's bad for them potentially. And it's certainly bad if you're looking to uh, have equity in a vehicle like this. What Elliot allowed us to do, and there was never a blank check. We had to go for every single deal on its own merits. And we generate value by, you know, creating a return for as a management team in excess of our cost of funding. So every buck we spend, whether it's you know, our salaries or office rent or on a transaction, you have to make a return on. It's a simple concept, right? And that's really, you'll see our team now owns over 5% of the company that's been earned that way. But Elliot allowed us, um, and we had a five-year plan to see if we could demonstrate that we could successfully compete, build a good business, and then get to a point where we would uh, increase our ownership base. And so that's really what they've done. They've been a perfect, impeccable partner, a super sophisticated, demanding partner, and they'll continue to be sort of disciplined. And, and look, we IPO'd, you mentioned earlier on, I think it's the largest um, TSX mining IPO since um, 2012. Um, we've got, you know, 13% more on really blue chip investors on the register and we'll continue on that growth. But we've got, to your point on the money, we've got no debt. Um, we've got, uh, we're generating run rate now, 30 million or so of free cash a quarter. Uh, we, we continue to grow. We've had the highest growth rate in the sector the last four or five years. And um, uh, we just put out a 10, five and 10 year outlook. You'll see more growth there that's essentially fully funded. Um, and our credit facility is undrawn. It's half a billion. We've got 100 million accordion in addition. So we've got well over 600 million of free cash. And then if there's opportunities to deploy equity sensibly, we don't take dilution lightly. But if we're growing, you know, we just have a strategic alternative as a public company we didn't have as a private one. And what stock exchange do you trade on and what's the ticker? Yeah, so we're we're on Toronto currently. Um, you know, it, uh, it's uh, TFPM and we've also got a dot .U, US dollar ticket to offer our, our investors um, that flexibility. Um, we'll look to list most likely in the US next year via MJDS um, and just expand that base. 
And, you know, other than Elliot and our management team on the IPO, look, most of our investors have actually, it's been a good mix out of Canada, United States, and out of Europe. So we've got a very good base uh, that we've picked up. Well, Sean, thank you for providing your comments on this sector, as well as an introduction to Triple Flag. To learn more, you can also go to the company's website, tripleflagpm.com. And I will also put a link to that in the show notes. Sean, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Bill. Thanks so much. Good Good talking to you. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty dollars or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.